Konnichiwa, and welcome to the White Noise Podcast. I'm Mohan Dutt, and joining me are Alok Sachdeva and John Barkham. And today we are very excited to be bringing you a discussion on restless leg syndrome with Dr. Andy Burkowski. Alok, you want to tell us a little bit about him? I would like to. Uh, it's our pleasure to welcome Dr. Burkowski to the podcast today. Uh, Dr. Burkowski earned a bachelor's degree in religious studies from Stanford University, then went on to obtain a medical degree at Wayne State University, um, subsequently pursuing a transitional year and neurology residency at Henry Ford Hospital and the Detroit Medical Center, Wayne State University. After that training, Dr. Bukowski went on, uh, returned to Stanford University to complete his uh, fellowship in sleep medicine. Dr. Bukowski now uh, treats all forms of sleep disorders and has a special interest in restless leg syndrome. Um, so yeah, John? he's going to be a great guest to have on this show because we're all interested in restless legs. It's a challenge to treat. And uh, we're going to get started here soon. We're going to talk to him a little bit, get him comfortable with the medium we're using. And if you want to skip the chatter again and get to the fruit of the conversation, uh, we'll put some timestamps in there so you can do that. All right. And again, just, you know, for our, our listeners, or if this is the first time that you are joining us, the purpose of this podcast is to use <clears throat> expert uh, clinical interviews to provide not just sleep practitioners, but uh, any former practitioner um, who is interested in sleep with up-to-date clinical information to help them improve their clinical practice. So we hope you enjoyed this conversation uh, on restless leg syndrome. For any of you guys who were at sleep conference last year, apparently this uh, was a pretty packed um, forum. So we hope you enjoy. We hope you learned something. Thank you very much. All right, Andy, thanks for joining us today on the White Noise Podcast. We are very excited to have you here. Um, before we get started, uh, again, typically what we like to do is get to know our, our guest speaker a little bit. So first question I want to ask you is how'd you get into sleep medicine? Well, yeah, yeah. So I did my undergraduate at Stanford and it was just this happenstance instance that in my freshman dorm, uh, they, they, they were giving a talk on sleep and this guy named William Dement would go around to different dorms and give talks on sleep. He'd take a survey, uh, if people would show up, he'd be pretty entertaining talking about narcoleptic dogs. And, you know, voila, 15 years later, I'm doing a fellowship at the Stanford Sleep Disorders Center and uh, William Dement is there. So it, it sort of came full circle with me starting in college where I got exposed to sleep medicine. Uh, William Dement himself taught the most popular undergraduate course while I was there, which I did not take actually, because I knew I was going into medicine mm. and it was uh, something that my, my roommate actually took his class. So I was getting a lot of sleep medicine from him and uh, went into neurology later in my career and was exposed to some sleep neurologists and exposed to sleep medicine. And when it came time to narrow down to a fellowship, that's really the direction I was driven in. It's kind of odd that Dement was going around to <laughs> give lectures and <laughs> to undergraduates, but uh, yeah, that, it seems a, odd. But quite a charismatic, uh, charismatic guy. He would let in this his course uh, back then. It's still going on. Uh, Sleep and dreams. He had I don't know six hundred, eight hundred students, and he would let people sleep in class, and huh. they get bonus points for taking a nap. <laughs> and it, it, it wasn't a very super That's serious cool. class. I mean, he's like but one of the, the founding. I mean. But yeah. he, he was educating the masses. I mean, it's yeah. really cool. And, and, and from that graduating class, two of us became fellows even the same year. 
Hmm. Uh, so it, it really uh, definitely uh, had an impact, even though I didn't take the class, which is the ironic part. Yeah. <laughs> what's your, uh, what's your favorite quote or piece of advice that you've gotten in, in your life or, or in your career in medicine up to this point? Well, yes, a lot, a lot of what I do both in my personal life and in my professional life is based on uh, Catholic faith, the Bible, uh, the Catholic, uh, Catholic, uh, doctrine. And, but one of the, the big things, you know, Jesus said, not to quote any, you know, average person, but you know, that what you do to the least of my brothers that you do to me. And it, it's a way to focus. And, and that's how I've been focusing my medical career is that when it comes to medicine, there's huge health disparities, socioeconomic, obviously lower socioeconomic rungs, there, there's more health disparities. But when you get to somebody getting cancer or somebody having heart disease, that's the great equalizer. Mm. And it, as a physician, uh, when you approach each patient, those things really should be thrown out. It may affect, you know, what test you can order, what sleep study you can order. But I try to make it that every person I'm giving a hundred percent of my effort to, as if it's sort of my second cousin, uh, each patient is my second cousin. And I take challenge and, and the ones that are difficult aren't necessarily the ones from low socioeconomic status or, or high socioeconomic status. It's the ones that are the ones that are the most difficult to deal with, the ones with the personality disorders, the ones that every other doctor you, that has seen them hates to see. Mm -hmm. And if you can address them and, and try to help their quality of life to the same extent as the nicest person, the, you know, the most entertaining patient that you have, then you can really make a huge difference because those really friendly patients, those are the ones everyone's going to do well with and, right. and their, their, their treatment's going to go well. But it's the really difficult ones, the ones you really hate. Uh, that annoy you, if you can really connect with them and get past that facade, you can make a difference in their lives too. And, and that's sort of the approach that I take uh, when it comes to seeing all of my patients. This is everyone's on an equal playing yeah, field. It gets all of my effort. Yeah. I think that's totally valid. I mean, yeah. there's, I think we all have patients that we prefer not to see or yeah. you kind of groan when you see <laughs> not them. Not me. Name. Well, yeah, not ever. you're perfect. You're, yeah. an, you're an angel. <laughs> but um, you know, well, those, those are easier, but, but I think that yeah. getting through that challenge of the difficult ones, yeah, yeah not, not clinically difficult, but, but just personality, personality wise, wise whether it's personality yeah. or they have social barriers, they right. don't have yeah. a car, they, you know, they don't take their medication, whatever it might right. be. Those are the ones where you can really make a huge difference if you can get bad at it. Cause there, there are a subset of people who are just not going to deal with that. Yeah. And, and those are the ones who tend to fall out of the system and don't get the benefits Agreed. of therapy. It's, it's always a bit difficult because it's like they need it the most. It seems like, you know, the sickest people, you know, the, and they're the hardest to reach. Right. You know, and so they're the greatest challenge, you know, so. Profound, John. I've struggled with that too. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, and then lastly, uh, our kind of fun topic, what's, uh, what's something that you've been really interested in this month? Mo book, movie, TV, anything? So I, I'm a huge sports fan and I was going to bring up Tiger Woods, but that's like three weeks ago's news. I was going to bring up the Pistons, but they're already out of the playoffs, swept out <laughs> in four, four games. So I, I'm going to go off the wall again. It's sort of medical related again. And uh, the, the book I'm reading is one that came out four or five years ago, but it it's um, uh, a book about uh, uh, fat and it's uh, it's. Uh, <laughs> This is the part we need to I edit out because I'm, I, I'm completely blanking out of the name. <laughs> <laughs> so this will be hopefully uh, edited out of uh, later. Um, so why we're fat? Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, so yeah. So the, um, so it's called the, the big fat 
surprise, and it's by Nina Teicholz, hard to pronounce her name, but it, it came out about four to five years ago. And this is before uh, the low carb movement that's become more mainstream now, the ketogenic movement, but uh, basically takes us through the history of how we got to the point of denouncing saturated fat and moving to more processed foods, high carbohydrate foods in a reaction, giving up egg yolks and things like that. And I, I find it to be a very interesting thing. And it really is a, a little bit scary from a research standpoint as to what researchers can pull off and what kind of effects that bad research can do 40, 50 years later. And we're still struggling to recover from some of these, these aspects now, you know, 45 40, 50 years later. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right about bad research and what it can do. I mean, look at Andrew Wakefield and the yeah. uh, impact he's had with kind of the vaccination thing. So, right. and that's been debunked, but it's really hard to come back from, from right. bad research. So, right. So is fat, uh, what's the argument of the book is, was Rocky Balboa good to drink the egg yolks or? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was, he would, that's the best part of the egg. It you is. You only need so much protein, but it's actually the, the fat and the nutrients in the egg yolk. And we're, you know, from the, I don't know, the eighties, nineties, uh, we're eating, uh, egg substitutes or egg whites. We're just getting the protein when you were throwing out the fat. What are we replacing it with? Egg beaters. Processed carbohydrates. That's true. So yeah. some people say, I've heard some, some people say that, you know, carbohydrates have killed more people than smoking, you know? Yes. And, and I think, uh, <laughs> you know, not to go off on a sure. total tangent, but we're going to be looking at some of these sweetened beverages in 10 years, like we, we are with smoking maybe 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's sort of the next frontier is like, Oh my goodness, I can't believe that, you know, that person's that. 350 pounds and drinking that soda with, you know, 50 grams of sugar. So, yeah. so that we're, we're in that direction. We're just not quite there yet. Hello. You got a, you got a pick for us. Ooh, I'm not prepared with a pick. Um, I will, uh, I'll throw one out there. Um, Ron Chernow recently did the White House Correspondents' Dinner um, in the absence of the White House staff, uh, as the case is recently. But a phenomenal author, biographer, his biography about Hamilton will knock your socks off, and I highly recommend it to everyone. All right. I saw last year's with Michelle Wolf. Yeah. Was it? Yes. That was more that controversial. Was a, little, uh, a little bit more controversial than a little than, cringeworthy <laughs> while watching that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh Hassan Minaj the year before was that was that was good, I thought. Yeah. Um he's a clever guy. And John, you got one? Well, um actually I, I last last weekend I rented glass. Oh, I just saw that too. Yeah, I thought it was really good. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Uh, but I also was a guy who used to own Unbreakable. I loved Unbreakable. Yeah. I thought, I thought it was a very underrated movie. Yeah. And, and the, it, it was like, I hadn't seen a movie in a while where they actually wrote a script. Like they actually <laughs> took their time and planned it. And it wasn't just so generic that I could have kind of gotten the hero arc on my own. But, uh, so that was good. Yeah. I really enjoyed I, that, it. That's a good, I, I like it. Well, M. Night Shyamalan's. And apparently there's one in between called The Beast. I didn't even know about it. It's called Split. Oh, that's it. Split. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's actually, it's, it's really good. Yeah. So I didn't see so, that before. So, and then so I was telling somebody about it and they're like, oh, you got to go see that too. So there's always a great reveal at the end of his movies. That's what I love. Except for the, the village. Maybe it was, that was kind of, <laughs> <laughs> no, we won't, we won't put any spoilers in for anyone <laughs> if you haven't seen it. Um, all right. And I'll just do a quick one here to finish up. Um, First, Andy, I got to say, I'm so elated over Tiger Woods winning. So you could have totally talked about yeah, that. That yeah. was pretty Depending amazing. Depending on how long this podcast yeah. has come out, that he might already be winning the U.S. Open. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> might be old news. Um, and 
I just say, you know, I know this is probably a little cliche right now, but Game of Thrones. I mean, don't spoil it, man. That last episode. Some was, of us. That was pretty awesome. We'll so, leave it at that. Yeah. Some All of right. us are waiting to go watch it at a friend's house because we're too cheap for HBO. All right. Okay. Fair enough. I won't ruin it for you. <laughs> it's really good. And you know what? If you haven't read the books, you should definitely do so because they're pretty amazing. All right. Let's get started with the case. Alok, you want to you wanna get us started? I would like to. Yes. Uh, we have the case of uh, Mr. X. He's a 70-year-old a man who presents to your clinic, Dr. Burkowski, with complaints of difficulty sleeping. He states that for the past 30 years, he's noticed that when he tries to rest, he gets uncom- an uncomfortable sensation in his legs and he needs to get up to walk around to make it better. The sensation initially didn't bother him very much, but it's gotten worse over the last 10 to 20 years. Um, his wife says that she um, has a fitful night of sleep and they can't sleep in the same bed because she gets kicked too much by the patient. She was previously diagnosed with sleep apnea 15 years ago due to poor sleep, and she was unable to tolerate CPAP, underwent a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, and lost 130 pounds since that time has not used CPAP. Um, so should we get into initial thoughts on the case based on that history? Yeah, so uh, th- this man uh, does have initially the clinical symptoms of restless leg syndrome, and and we could get into uh, some of the findings by his wife in particular, but uh, really with, with the initial uh, criteria, restless leg syndrome is a clinical diagnosis. There really is no physical test. There's some supportive tests and we may be able to do one in this case uh, that might help support the diagnosis, but it really is a clinical decision. So you should be able to walk out of the room and not that I recommend not examining the patient, but based on the history alone, you should be able to determine based on the diagnostic criteria, whether this is restless legs. And the only thing, I mean, he meets a lot of these criteria, but it's still kind of open-ended. You have your broad differential and and those go to things like uh, neuropathy and um, spinal cord issues like back problems or, or just even even psychological things like fidgetiness, not even psychological disorders, but just feeling like you need to move around being fidgety. So those are all on the broad differential, but what's really going to uh, the two parts, I think the criteria now is up to five. There's five key parts in terms of the diagnosis of restless legs, but the two that are the most, it's the urge to move the legs. This is not a kicking phenomenon. This is not, this is a sensation you have to have the urge to move the legs and there has to be a circadian rhythmicity about it where the, the symptoms either have to be present or, or worse at night. And those are the two things that are hallmark for the disorder because almost every other condition that can overlap with these, these it shouldn't really be in a circadian nature. And, and for those who don't know, it's circadian just around the clock. So depending on which time of the day it is, and this will affect patients at night and not as much or not at all at other times of the day. And these patients have an urge to move, but not necessarily a tingling or uh, pain or anything of that nature. Sometimes they, they could have sensations more of a uh, more concrete. A lot of times the description is a lack of ability to describe this. <laughs> uh, so it's this, well, I can't, I can't quite describe it, but you know, I, but urge to move usually hits right on it, but some people do complain of kind of a tingling, creepy, crawly feeling. Some people, it actually is painful, particularly 
we'll talk about later in cases of augmentation, uh, uh, pain could develop. Uh, but typically it's, it's that urge to move and it's not an uncontrolled movement. It is the, the desire to move the legs more than anything. Can we quickly just, you know, we mentioned two of the criteria for, uh, yeah, there's now five. It used to be four, but now it's five. You got, you want to, yeah. Uh, let's run through the criteria, diagnostic criteria for restless leg syndrome quickly. Um, so all of the following five must be present. An urge to move the legs, usually accompanied by or caused by uncomfortable or unpleasant sensations in the legs. An urge to move the legs and accompanying sensations begin or worsen during periods of rest or inactivity. The urge to move the legs and accompanying sensations are partially or totally relieved by movements such as walking or stretching. An urge to move the legs and accompanying sensations during rest or inactivity are worse in the evening or night compared to the day. And finally, the above symptoms are not better accounted for by another medical or behavioral condition, as you mentioned, such as peripheral neuropathy or other condition. And there are many. Right. And the the key there is that these could be comorbid conditions. So sometimes that makes it tricky. But if you have a patient with neuropathy and they also have restless legs, they usually can say, well, it's not that. <laughs> it's not my, you know, numbness and tingling from the diabetic neuropathy. It's this other description of what sensation they feel. And it's pretty rare that patients cannot distinguish between two, even if it's comorbid. So you, your job is to really key in on, uh, as a clinician, what are the symptoms and does that fit into these criteria? Because these are fairly unique criteria, particularly, uh, I mean, people with joint and musculoskeletal conditions, if they're not moving, it could become uncomfortable. But certainly the the reason at night that it would be worse and not even present at other times of the day that it really fits one, one condition. Exactly. As opposed to say akathisia, neuroleptic induced, something like that, where you clearly right. have an urge to move. Right. But, but that should be pretty constant or, or fluctuations based on medication effect, for example. So I, I struggle at the VA with this because some of these guys have overlapping neuropathy. There's a lot of diabetics and I'll start asking these questions and, They'll be like, yep, yep, yep. Or, and then, and then they'll kind of circle back that it was just, eh, not so true later on. And did you have, when you were at the VA, did you struggle kind of teasing the, the neuropathy out? Was there a way that you helped do that or? Yeah. Some, sometimes it is difficult and I'm not saying that that's easy, but oftentimes you'll treat, there will be some supportive, and that's where you get into this, some of the supportive findings that may help to support the diagnosis and distinguish between something like a neuropathy. Sometimes it's the medications themselves and their response. Although uh, we'll see that a lot of these medications may overlap with some of the other conditions that you're trying right. to distinguish from, <laughs> right, right. but, but yeah, so that's where the, it's helpful to have some of the supporting criteria. Or do you ever get these guys that have like three, uh, three or four, you know, the symptoms, I mean, you know, like three of the symptoms and you're like, man, it's just, they're not that articulate themselves. And you're like, I really think they have it. And sometimes I was like, yeah, maybe atypical ROS or some sort of overlap syndrome. Do you ever run into those cases or am I just kind of not going at the right direction? Yeah, that, that happens all the time. And, and a lot of that happens uh, with some of the limb movements that are often associated with restless leg syndrome, periodic limb movements of sleep. Uh, when there's a periodic uh, kind of flexor extensor of, of the leg or twitch of the leg in, in layman's terms, that occurs every, say, 20 to 40 seconds through, uh, during portions of the night. Uh, but some of these can occur while awake and then it gets into these movement disorders where it's, uh, they're 
it's actually uh, not under the patient's control and they think they have an urge, but then they say it's an uncontrolled movement and they're not really in control. Restless legs classically is they have the urge to move and then they volitionally move them to relieve that sensation. And that's sort of the neurologic feedback loop that we think is going on. And it's usually not an, an uncontrolled movement. But sometimes patients will prevent with something like that, but it's only at night and it responds to the treatment. And you wonder, is this restless legs or what, what right. is this? So that, that does happen often. Yeah, I find it hard for me. And then I also get a lot of people coming in. They're like, yeah, my wife says I have restless legs or, or I have restless legs. They identify because they watched a commercial on it, you know, for, for Requip or something, or their wife's telling them they kick at night. How often does that happen to you? I mean, I, I feel like I see it all the time. It's pretty frequent. And as I'll hopefully discuss later, that could set some patients on a dangerous path because what they might be saying is they have leg movements of sleep, periodic leg movements of right. sleep or any type of other leg movement. So if the patient doesn't experience the restless legs is a sensory motor phenomenon. So there's a motor component. And if they only have a motor component, that's not necessarily restless legs. That might be periodic limb movements of sleep, which are not specific to restless legs. They could be found in other conditions or just unknown with things like aging. But the restless legs syndrome, you have you would have to narrow down to, do you actually have this urge when you're awake? Because this is a wake sensory phenomenon. We're not experiencing right. sensations. Sleep is an anesthetic state. So you're not experiencing yeah. the restless legs while you're sleeping. You may be having periodic limb movements. Yes. What, you've already kind of touched on a lot of these um, or on, on some of these, but what, I guess for our, for our listeners, what is, you know, what are some key questions in your initial evaluation of a patient who, you know, presents to your clinic? Do you want to ask for, you know, for restless leg syndrome? So if they don't come out and, and say these things uh, that Alok had just mentioned in terms of these five diagnostic criteria, you have to kind of describe around uh, each instance. And so you, you really want to hone in on whether there is a sensation, this, this urge to move, and you might need to ask multiple questions in order to get around it and make sure you can distinguish in, in the case that John just mentioned that it's not just your wife notices you kick every 30 seconds when you're asleep as your legs are restless or you're fidgeting because you have insomnia and you can't fall asleep. But really the, that sensation that you have the urge to move it, that it's, it's happening at nighttime or it's at worse at night. And then some supporting things where you could say, hey, uh, did you see, uh, you know, uh, the movie last week? You know, how, if you were to see this movie, you know, what would you do? And the patient might say, I don't go to movies because I can't sit still there. My legs right. just bother me. And so that's something that you can get into car rides, movie theaters, plane flights are the worst. So that, that's the one I go to, like on a plane, how, how <laughs> does this happen on a plane? Yeah. Sometimes it, it doesn't because it's simply Daytime, only at right? night, but yeah. sometimes the, the certain situation of movement restriction of the legs prevents the symptoms until they hit something like that's an airline where they're, yeah. you know, not moving for four hours in a cramped environment. That's secret technique right there. <laughs> right. <clears throat> that's high, high level questioning. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is the difference? You, and you talked about periodical movements of sleep. So what's the difference between restless leg and periodic limb movements of sleep? Is it the same kind of, is it a spectrum or are they two like distinctly different? So they, so they are, both conditions are somewhat related uh, in some circumstances. So they're neither necessary nor sufficient for each other. <laughs> so you could have restless leg syndrome 
But if you did enough, say back-to-back nights of sleep studies, maybe three nights in a row, something like greater than 90% of all patients with restless leg syndrome, the clinical diagnosis will have periodic limb movements of sleep. However, the opposite is not true because periodic limb movements of sleep, uh, heart disease, aging, uh, other conditions, spinal muscular conditions can cause periodic limb movements of sleep. And so that finding does not mean that a patient necessarily has restless legs, but it definitely gives you the sense that there, you, you may want to ask about it if that's a finding. But to jump to a treatment based on a finding on the sleep study is incorrect. And that is the road I'd mentioned earlier that you go down, you start patients on medications. And if it's the wrong medications, you might create a, a problem when there didn't need a solution. There was no solution needed to a problem, you know, the problem without a solution, basically. Right. It seems to follow based on that, uh, Andy, that the pathophysiology of restless leg syndrome is different than that for periodic limb movement disorder. Um, or at least, you know, maybe they express differently. Um, yeah. I, so you, you touched on the word that I, I hate to use as this a periodic limb movement disorder. Uh-huh. It exists as a, a nominal diagnosis, uh, the International Classification of Sleep Disorders, number three, ICD, ICSD-3, has it in there, but it it's listed as this excessive daytime sleepiness, the exclusion of other conditions, including restless legs. And I, I'm not an expert on periodic limb movement disorder because I don't know that I've ever seen it. <laughs> now, a lot of restless legs experts will disagree with me on this. I'm on this committee for the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, which is going to address periodic limb movement uh, disorder. I only use the word uh, periodic limb movements of sleep because I don't know that it is a disorder. I don't know that the periodic limb movements cause any problems, but I do think that they're associated with certain things that are problematic. Uh And whether it's a cardiovascular problem or a neurologic problem, or whether the neurologic problem is restless legs itself, Sometimes periodic limb movements of sleep are, they definitely overlap the, the pathophysiology of restless legs. Sometimes they're not related whatsoever. So it sort of doesn't really answer your question, but it's a, in some cases it is. Yeah. yeah, because the, there's a lot of very complex genetics involved in restless leg syndrome. Not you inherit one gene, you get restless legs, but all of these risk genes uh, that show up for restless legs. And I, I won't get into those details, but a lot of these uh, risk factors in all these mouse models, uh, there are increased leg movements and that's how you can monitor the response to different, uh, diagnostic tests and different, uh, uh laboratory tests on these uh, animal models is by calculating, uh, the, the activity of the mice, but also the limb movements. And there's a huge overlap and there's a whole huge overlap uh, between uh, dysfunction areas of the brain and limb development, for example, uh, when it comes to uh, restless legs, it may start even in uh, embryogenesis where the genes kick in and, and there's some strong genetic components, strong developmental components. Uh, restless legs tends to run uh, in families at times. So, but so does periodic limb movements of sleep. So I, I think uh, to get back to your question, it's uh, the types of periodic limb movements that are associated with restless legs certainly share the okay. same common, probably pathogenesis. Uh-huh. And that's not fully described yet. That's what we're, we're still trying to figure out. But then there are this whole subset that have nothing to do with restless leg syndrome are part of another phenomenon and may not be pathological. So treating them 
with restless legs medication is definitely the wrong way to go mm. in my mind. Can you, can you briefly touch on the pathogenesis of restless leg or is that a whole can that we're opening up? It's, <laughs> it's a huge can because it's not fully understood and, and not being a basic scientist. Yeah. I'm yeah. not the greatest expert, but there's fundamentally a, a couple of areas that we think are related to restless legs. We think restless legs is a, in, we'll talk about this later is an iron mediated, uh, for the vast majority of patients, maybe, uh, in all cases, it has a role in iron and it's an iron, uh, levels of the brain, whether it's in, and, and it's also in dopamine. So iron is involved in a couple of ways. It's involved in dopamine transport, uh, within the brain, but it's also a cofactor in dopamine synthesis. So there's a couple of different areas that may be involved. And that's the relationship between, uh, why dopaminergic drugs are effective in restless legs and in reducing periodic limb movements of sleep and why iron therapy is a, is a key to treatment and why the genetics, the genetic risks, uh, for restless legs tend to be related to dopamine function and iron homeostasis and defects in those two pathways. So I think iron and dopamine, uh, different types of studies, uh, you know, models of functional MRI PET scans uh, have been done showing different types of, uh, defects in iron and, and, and things aren't particularly consistent. There's a lot of small studies, maybe a dozen or more small studies, uh, using imaging techniques, but there, there's quite a lot that is left to be, uh, developed with restless legs, but it's primarily, we think a central nervous system phenomenon, even though it's in the legs, there's certainly also a, a peripheral and potentially spinal component, newer studies out, uh, with more intense lower extremity, like EMG quantitative, uh, things, uh, that, are showing that there's difference in like sensation in patients with restless legs compared to people, uh, just the, I guess the wild type human, but, uh, that, that research is ongoing and is yet to be fully elucidated right now, but it's primarily, we think a central nervous system problem mm. at the moment. Before we, um, dig into treatment a little bit and, and, uh, see the progression of our case, I wanted to ask you a historical question. Willis-Eckbaum disease, um, an old name or alternative name for restless leg syndrome. You have Willis and Eckbaum who are separated in time by 300 years. And it's one of the only conditions where there's such a dramatic, uh, you know, chronological difference in the namesakes of the eponym. And my question for you is, why do you think it took so long for medical research and science to dig deeper into what restless leg syndrome is, to describe it officially, and then to develop more formal treatments for this condition. Clearly it's been around. Right. Yeah. And so Sir Thomas Willis, I think he either was a physician or, or physiologist and I hopefully UK, I'm thinking, I hopefully I don't get the country wrong, but I think it was 16th century and he had his writings and he had some profound observations about, uh, people he described with restless legs. And he even described some of our treatments, uh, particularly fascinating is the opium that, you know, this lady, she's crawling, uh, her legs are crawling at night. She's fitful and restless. And then boom, she takes some opium and she's great. And ah. so I mean, he knew that opiates somehow had some relationship to restless legs 
400 years ago or almost 400 years ago. And then there's this gap and, and, uh, Ekbom, I think is a Swedish neurologist now mid 20th century. And he has very eloquent descriptions of, of restless legs. And that, that long gap, I think because it wasn't until we got to the era where we could have measurements of things like dopamine and iron, which you're moving into kind of the 20th century for the most part, that they were really even able to investigate this. I, I don't know historically, but it could have been blown off as just, you know, some other phenomenon, just restlessness, because that, that's still what, uh, the condition sometimes you have to distinguish it from is just, just this, is it somebody's psychological state? And I don't know if people had taken it uh, seriously as a condition back then. And I'm sure there, there were uh, patients throughout history uh, suffering from this condition, but what, what's ironic is that it got this additional name Willis Ekbung disease because the word syndrome made it sound like it wasn't something that was potentially not real. So when you say it's a disease, then you're actually talking about something that's going on. It's a disease of the brain, which it is. The problem is Willis Ekbung, restless leg syndrome is a great description of what the condition is, whereas Willis <laughs> Ekbom is another eponymal. Right. But the reason they came out with that name was in a reaction, I think maybe late 90s, early uh 21st century. But when these drugs, the dopamine agonists came out for restless legs, they were heavily advertised, Pramipexol, Ropinerol. And there were even articles being published by physicians saying, did we come up with a treatment for a disease that does not exist? Is this fidgetiness? Is this uh, kids who can't sit still? Is it people with anxiety and can't have to move their legs? And we came up with a drug that we can market to treat this condition. So the reaction in the restless legs community was, hey, we need to name something we call it Willis Ekbom disease. Now it, it's going to sound more real. So it's almost, it was like a political spin on the condition. Although I, I think most clinicians prefer the name restless legs because that really describes the condition. Whereas if you don't have this historical knowledge of Willis and Ekbom, you're not going to know exactly what it is. Uh, so, but that, that's, that's where we're at. We're, we're even within the last two decades, we have uh, people questioning whether it's a condition or not. And with the development of, uh, some of the knowledge of the genetic risk uh, factors, the pathogenesis that may involve iron and dopamine, uh, some of the effects of the opiate drugs, that it's now given a concrete aspect to it and in, in, to make it a real disease where I, I don't think there are very many. I did run into a physician who is actually a patient of mine. He's like, restless legs, do because I was screening for restless legs. He's like, do they really think that's real or not? <laughs> and he, he, he had been out of practice for 10 or 15 years, but he, he was, but that's sort of the mentality is that that's not really a condition. Right. And I'm sure there's other conditions, maybe not in sleep medicine, but that don't, we, we don't know the pathophysiology. We're not sure what it is. PLMD. Fibromyalgia. Yeah. Yeah. So some of these things may be elucidated in 10 or 15 years, and then we can distinguish uh, from it. And restless leg syndrome is not likely to be a homogeneous condition either. Right again, based on these uh, genetic risk markers, these uh, single nu nucleo nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs that they've discovered for restless legs. Uh -huh. All right. Um, you want to, should we get into the, the rest manage? of the case? Yeah. Should, or should we jump so, to the rest yeah. of the, okay. Um, so you talk to your patient um, more and he says, well, okay. And you already touched on this. Well, I also have a diagnosis of degenerative disc disease. Um, I have, and he has a spinal stimulator in place. Um, he takes Norco every four to six hours for back pain and takes three milligrams of Requip nightly. 
Uh, he states that with this regimen, he's typically able to fall asleep within 30 minutes. And if he wakes up, he'll need to take another Norco or Requip. Otherwise, he won't be able to fall back to sleep. So I guess, you know, kind of getting into how would, you know, this is someone who presented to your clinic. I guess, de novo, how would you kind of address medications? Um, and do you prefer, you know, dopamine agonists or do you prefer the alpha two delta ligands? What's your, what's your thought on, on that? And right. Yeah. So this has a kind of a layering of, of challenge because we have, again, these overlapping conditions where you've got degenerative disc disease, spinal stimulator, potentially, uh, some peripheral, uh, nerve, um, uh, damage that's a result of all this degenerative disc disease. So is this the symptoms that are causing distress, keep patients waking up and then sensing them and can't get back to sleep. The Norco kind of treats both. It, it treats back pain. It treats, it can treat nerve pain. It can treat restless legs. So what, what are we treating here? We're, maybe we could be treating all of them at the same time. And so th- what honing in on the description of what it actually is. And it's again, it's going to be more the urge to move whatever portion of, of the lower extremities is causing the effect. And it tends to be less about the pain. So if it's, well, I, I need to move my legs because of the pain in mm-hmm. my back or the pain shooting down my legs because of uh, the radiculopathy, those are where you're going to need to look into distinguishing those two. If you couldn't, then some of these medications are going to be different. The, the, Ropinerol is not going to have an effect likely on any type of back pain or radiculopathy because that's going to be specific to restless leg syndrome. Uh, so the way, so that would help to know, you know, what really works better is it the opiate or, or is it taking that extra dose of, of Ropinerol? Uh, that jumps me to my point. Well, what about these treatments? What about the alpha two Delta ligands? What about the dopamine agonists? So the dopamine agonists, like Ropinerol and Primapexol FDA approved for restless leg syndrome, I would never start anyone on one of them. (laughs) So I'm just going to, that's not, that's not every, that's not a consensus opinion, but that's my opinion is because uh, the, uh, the large restless leg syndrome groups around 2015 and 2016, they came out with a white paper, including like the international restless leg syndrome study group, some of the European restless legs groups. And they said dopamine agonists should not be used first line for restless leg syndrome. They came out very clearly. Most physicians haven't gotten that message yet. And, and still the reflex is, well, in medical school, you learn restless legs, primapexol. So that, that's just kind of the reflex right now. And that needs to change. And the reason it needs to change is because of augmentation. And augmentation, some of my restless legs colleagues say, it's all about time and dosing. The longer you're on it, the more you take of these dopamine agonists, you will eventually inevitably develop augmentation of the condition. And it it seems philosophically incorrect for me to really to start a patient on a medication that will eventually make the condition worse. If you had your patient with hypertension, high blood pressure, and you're going to start chlorothaladone, but you said it's going to work great for your blood pressure in five years, you're going to have hypertensive crisis. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that you would start that medication. And that's kind of what we're looking at in dopamine agonists. And a lot of the studies show that the augmentation may take years. It may be months, uh, but the, the dropout rate on these medications is continuous. There aren't patients who are on the drug at the same dose for 20 years. It just doesn't happen. 
It's rare. In, in my experience, everyone will have uh, augmentation is inevitable. And to start somebody on something that will make it worse. And the worst patients I have ever seen, the worst symptoms are always the ones who are on dopamine agonists. Not that all the ones on dopamine agonists right. are severe, but the worst cases have always been oh. augmented and, and, dopamine ag yeah. and dopamine agonists are the, are the cause. No yeah. one, even with the lowest iron levels, you know, hemoglobin of four anemic with no iron whatsoever, they do not present with symptoms as bad as some of the patients with restless legs and augmentation. I would, I would agree with you. Clinically, that's what I've seen. I almost never use it before this came out. I've had this feeling that it wasn't that effective. And I was always getting people that was refractory because of augmentation. And I, I don't know which paper it was, but at the national conference last year, they showed something like after five years, like 95% of the people were off of these medications right. because of augmentation. So it just seems like exactly what you're saying. Don't do it. Don't even start. Right. And there's some difficulty. So they, they can't outright ban it, particularly in Europe, the alpha two delta ligands, which are now considered first line in the United States. In some European countries, there may be some restrictions on prescribing it off label. Like we can, we're much more free to prescribe off label here in the U S than in Europe. There, I, oh, I'm not, uh, so there's some restriction on, on drugs like gabapentin and pregabalin, which are first line pharmacological agents here in the U S now. And so uh, Mohan, to get back to your question about what's first line, it's definitely not the dopamine agonist. <laughs> For me personally, I just never would start. It, yeah. it, there would be some rare case where, the, you know, there's some rare situation where everything else is excluded and you have right. no choice. Right. But even then I'd be very hesitant to, to use dopamine agonists. I'm usually taking people off of them, even people who are doing fairly well on okay. them because I want to take them off before they augment. And you kind of switch over to uh, gabapentin or gabalin. Is there a preference there for either of those? Those would be the ones. So it depends. Once again, getting back, uh, not to jump around too much, but sure. getting back to the pathophysiology of it, it's true the dopamine agonists address the pathophysiology, but the the changes that are made to the central nervous system, to the dopamine pathways, where it's uh, either a lack of dopamine uh, uh, release, a decrease in downregulation of dopamine receptors, or whether it's the wrong dopamine pathways are affected at time because there are a certain dopamine pathways that are stimulatory and some that are inhibitory for these sensations. And some of the theories of augmentation is you're, you make, you're producing less dopamine, you're lowering the number of receptors because it's the drug you're, you're, you're overstimulating. So the, the brain has the feedback mechanism and in, in a way it's similar to any other type of dependence or, uh, addiction, I guess, in layman's terms, is that it has chemical changes in the brain. Sure. And yeah. those exact mechanisms are not clear, but they're fairly, uh, uh, there's some fairly good ideas as to how augmentation occurs. But with the first line agents, the, you know, the gabapentin or pregabalin, is there one of those that you think is better than the other? Or it's just, yeah, you know, do whatever's on, no, on so formulary. There are very few studies on gabapentin itself. The uh, pro-drug form of gabapentin, gabapentin are anacarbyl, uh, has been well studied and now gabapentin is used off label because it's basically the same drug based on some of the studies the gabapentin and a carbyl may be absorbed a lot better but it's it's also branded and we have in general i would have trouble getting patients on that I medication for, i can't get it for anybody i've tried a couple of times and the formulary comes back and it's like a couple hundred dollars right very challenging so from my experience that would be one i may prefer to use if the absorption is actually better 
which it sounds like from, from the studies, but these are drug company funded studies. So it's not exactly clear how much more effective it is, but, but from experience, the, the gabapentin is, is effective at times. Mm -hmm. And pre-Gablin, there was a great uh, New England Journal of Medicine trial that compared a gabapentin to, to Pramipexol, which at the time was the gold standard. And it actually outperformed Pramipexol. And so we know pregabalin has been tested in a randomized clinical trial, placebo controlled. Gabapentin has not really been tried. It's a generic drug. No one's going to try it, but we have good studies on gabapentin and a carbo. So you could extrapolate that gabapentin is likely to be helpful. So a lot of that will depend on uh, the insurance situation and what's practical for the patient. Sure. Pregabalin is sometimes not covered as much. It's somewhat of a brand name drug, but not to the extent of gabapentin and a carbol right now Sure, in the well, U.S., I should say. I want to uh, backtrack a little bit uh, and dig back into the question of iron therapy. Um, iron therapy gets back at the pathophysiology of restless leg syndrome. And my first question to you is patient selection. You know, is there a certain type of patient that you would more be more likely with restless leg syndrome that you would be more likely to test for iron deficiency? Would you test everyone? And then uh, what would be your criteria to initiate treatment? And, sure. and now let me add something to that. And any additional tests you'd throw out in this first pass, right? Yeah. As you go through that. Yeah. So from my clinical practice, and it does vary a, a little bit uh, among restless leg specialists, but generally anyone with restless legs at this point, any significant level of restless legs, I should say, I'm going to be getting a ferritin level, a serum ferritin level and a serum transferrin saturation percent, uh, which is uh, iron over the trans, uh, uh, transferrin, uh, binding capacity. And the, uh, those two are, are helpful. The, the reason you can't just transfer ferritin when it's low, it's the most specific for having low iron. Uh, however, it's an acute phase reactant. It can sometimes be high in inflammatory conditions, or if you, you ate a steak right before the blood test, your ferritin level might be pretty high. And there's also circadian components to this. So when you're supplementing iron, you want to take it at nighttime. And when you're drawing the iron, you want to take it in the morning. So I get a fasting ferritin and percent transferrin saturation in the morning and try to have the patient not eat meat or take an iron supplement you know, within I, I 12 hours. I didn't of know that test. Yeah. And that, that's kind of a little bit overkill, but, but that's going to get your most accurate level. Yeah. Now, when you say iron deficiency, that's a, a tricky term because the lab's going to come back and most of these patients are going to be quote normal, oh, right. end quote, normal for the typical range for male and female that would be high enough to not cause anemia in restless leg syndrome. This has been well studied. The brain iron levels of patients with restless leg syndrome are much lower than the average person without restless legs. So for X blood level of whatever you're measuring in, in person A, the restless legs person might have a fraction of that in the central nervous system. So what's considered low for an anemic person, obviously if the person's anemic and their iron is actually low, you do need to supplement and that might be the only cause. But you have to have a higher level that you're supplementing too, which also makes supplementation challenging. So there's some debate. Ferritin, it's pretty clear that it's at least 50 nanograms per milliliter. And I tend to like to go above 75. But there are some of these iron infusion studies where you're, you could be infusing people well above 100 uh, in terms of a ferritin, and they, they have significant benefit uh, 
for those higher levels. And we're not measuring, uh, there, there was one iron infusion study coming out of Korea where they measured CSF ferritin, but it's just not practical. And in the U S nobody's going to submit to lumbar punctures <laughs> to do these studies. Yeah, so nobody the, wants to be. Uh, yeah. And you're, you're not going to submit your, we don't even don't want to do a CSF hypocretin for narcolepsy. It's, it's still, uh, you know, something we hesitate to you do. Let's face it. You don't want us poking around back there with the needle. No, we <laughs> you don't want to poke around back there with the needle. I did, I did five yeah. in internal medicine and Two. I'm signed yeah. off. Yeah, so I'm good. Yeah. So the, so the surrogate marker is the serum and just know that it might just be an inadequate measure of the actual brain level of iron, but 75, I think is a good measure. And then 20% of the uh, percent transparent saturation. I will check those two on, just about any patient I would consider treatment for. If it's somebody who has like symptoms once a month, I might look at their hemoglobin and say, yeah, as long as they're anemic, you know, we don't need to boost the levels, but pretty much anyone might stand to benefit from improved iron levels with Russ's leg symptoms and iron levels below those, the levels I just mentioned. I mean, you're a neurologist. I've seen people throw in the old neuro six pack, the TSH, B12, folate. I mean, do you, do you stop at the ferritin saturation? Are we just <laughs> wasting our money? With the extra labs, I mean, yeah, I I don't think there's enough evidence that some of the like one of the big ones is the magnesium. Yeah, or, yeah, you yeah. know, some I forget what exactly there there, there could be some of. relationship. We just don't have uh, enough data yet, from sure. what I know, okay. to start testing other electrolytes. And there there very well may be some relationship there, but the the iron is where the money is, uh, and that's uh, that's sure. what you want to go after right at the beginning, the first time you see the patient, that's the first thing. And that's why I check both levels. And I don't even really care what the CBC is as much. That's more of a, uh, sometimes to get an iron infusion, you might yeah. need a low CBC. So that might be helpful, but you, you're going to supplement if they're low, regardless of what their CBC right. shows. What are your thoughts on like PO supplementation versus iron infusion? Like when do you, who gets what, or when would you send someone? For yeah. It? So the iron supplementation, the people who need the infusion faster are often the ones the most iron deficient. And those are the ones who you might even be able to get it covered for. Insurance is, is quite a barrier. John, the VA system, sometimes you could just order it because that's what's clinically right to Sur do. Surprisingly uh, easy to do, you showed me. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that's some of the advantages. So some of, some of this is restricted by what the patient can get access to barriers or cost and coverage by insurance. So ideally I would just infuse everyone okay, at this point and, and just skip the whole PO. The reason, <laughs> but the PO can work. And the reason it's problematic, uh, the oral iron is not well absorbed at higher ferritin levels. In fact, uh, and I won't get, there's a huge yeah. complex mechanism of iron homeostasis, but, uh, there's a, uh, a signaling molecule called hepcidin that basically shuts, helps to shut down absorption of iron in the bowels where it's absorbed at higher levels of iron. And particularly if you over supplement. So when you're pretty low on iron, your body's going to take in the iron, but when you have higher levels of iron, particularly the ferritin levels seems to be somewhat of a measure, you're going to just not absorb it. It's a metal. It's an element. It's the yeah. element iron. It, you're going to have iron in your bowels. You're going to have hard stools. You're going to have constipation if that iron is not absorbed. You take this medication that makes you constipated. Right. <laughs> and it may be, and yeah, so the literature, and the other thing is how we supplement. So the literature on supplementation is based on people who have low iron levels and are anemic. I see. We don't have, there is, 
as far as I know, restless leg syndrome is the only condition where you would be supplementing iron in somebody who doesn't have low iron. I call it subclinical iron deficiency. They don't have a little hemoglobin, right. but they, you know, well, relatively yeah, it's low. not black or white. It's a spectrum. So you, you yeah. go from a spectrum of 75 down to 10 is, is 11 uh, normal and 10 is iron deficient. No, it's a spectrum. Yeah. But as you go higher on the spectrum, you're going to absorb iron sure. less, particularly the oral iron. And so there are some studies coming out. And to my knowledge, I don't know of other conditions other than restless legs where you would supplement somebody with a ferritin of 50 yeah. with oral iron. But some of the studies that are initially coming out is that paradoxically, because of this hepcidin in this down regulation of absorption is that lower doses are more effective than higher doses. It seems so counterintuitive, so right? It is yeah. where less is actually more. And I, I have this great, this now I think I love using this analogy. It may not be great, but I love using this with my patients. <laughs> is the, the bowels are like with iron, the bowels are the nightclub. So, you know, people are trickling into the nightclub. It's doing well, it's doing well, but too many people show up at the nightclub. The police <laughs> shut it down. Now no one can get in the nightclub. <laughs> the police, the, the yeah. police have shut down the nightclub. No one's, the nightclub is dead. <laughs> no one's getting in. So it would be less is more. It's the same with iron. It, you're going to take in a little bit, little bit at low doses. Yeah. You do you give a high dose. It just shuts down. Sure. No clubbing in. with Dr. So, <laughs> so some of, some of the initial studies that, that's been presented at the American Academy of Sleep Medicine yeah. conferences, 20 to 25 milligrams of elemental iron, particularly taken at nighttime when it's better absorbed, may be yeah, the maximum. Is that, is that like a 325? No, 325 is like, six, it's like, ha, it's like a third of a 325 ferrosulfate. Wow. Okay. So, so that's, that's like, like 65. Yeah. So I sometimes say cut that in half and take 65, make, half of 65. Did it make a difference if they add it with vitamin C, ascorbic acid? I think the absorption is better with vitamin because C, ascorbic like, I, acid. I, you know, like after doing this and struggling with low iron and not repleting, I almost standard now just throwing the ascorbic acid to help. And yeah, I only so, do it once a day. And I, I, I used to say, you know, orange juice, but now, now I'm anti, you anti-carb, know, yeah. anti-carb. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So no, I don't want people drinking orange juice because right. it's, it's a surrogate for sugar, water, yeah, spike yeah. in insulin. So now I say, just take a small a- tablet of vitamin C, empty <laughs> stomach. Mix it into your egg yolks. Uh, mix it in with your, no. So you, you actually <laughs> want it on an empty stomach. So you, <laughs> you want to actually do it at bedtime. You don't want people eating at night anyway. Sure. So if you're, you've got a great sleep patient. They're not eating three, four hours before bed. Bed, sure. Just have them drop in a vitamin C tablet and a low dose of, of, uh, any pick your iron supplement. You don't want to use the slow release because the, then it, it might release far down on the gastrointestinal system, not be absorbed. So an immediate release iron with the vitamin C is what I recommend on an empty stomach at night. I wonder and, if a multivitamin with a little iron and it has enough for the, that lower dose of, you know, yeah, little, it depends. It, it possibly could look. be. I don't know if some of the, because iron going back to our chemistry days is a cation. In, oh God. So I don't know if the magnesium or whatever cation. Screws up the, the reduction. Yeah. I, I don't know if the absorption or, is going to be yeah. affected oh, by I that. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I, yeah. I have no idea actually. Yeah. So, but, I, but that would be a thought that the, uh, the multivitamin might have too much stuff. Sure, and it might compete good. for iron absorption. Sure or, or whatever, uh, chemical processing is going on in the gut, but that's what I would do. But obviously if they're, they're anemic and their ferritin is low, you could probably do what a typical primary care doctor would do to manage iron deficiency anemia. And you know, the 325 once a day or every other day, which is more trendy now, but, but giving some rest to the gut to avoid over, uh, nightclub shutdown. The nightclub shutdown yeah. is important. So sometimes if their levels aren't going up, they're getting constipated. You might want to drop the dose in half rather than increase it if their levels aren't going up. So the iron thing, you know, I obviously see that more often in women in my clinic, you know, it's, it's for obvious reasons. 
the men, it seems to be they're on either an acid blocking medication or they've had this gastric bypass sort of deal, then they're not absorbing things. Um, or they're on Coumadin, there's some sort of trickle of, of loss of blood somewhere. It, there's leak. But like, is it, is there something I'm missing between the genders there that I might be missing as far as like why they're iron deficient? Yeah, yeah it, it goes back to iron homeostasis. I think uh, premenopausal women with the menstrual cycle are, are just running at lower iron levels. I think sure. that's, a, I think even the normal values for premenopausal women are of ferritin yeah, and are, are much lower, probably well below 75 for the average premenopausal woman. Pregnancy, statistically, 40% of women during pregnancies may experience restless leg syndrome. Yeah. And that's all, you know, the baby stealing the iron kind of thing. <laughs> um, so the, these are things that are very sensitive <laughs> to iron loss, whether it's a comorbid condition, whether it's bariatric surgery. And having this condition fall into the sleep center, we're seeing a lot of patients who have had bariatric surgery, obesity, sleep apnea, they come into yeah. your clinic. Right. And a lot of the bariatric surgery patients, you're not, you're the whole point of the ruin why is right. not to absorb as much. Right. Yeah. You're not going to have an easy time. Even if you gobble down these iron pills to, you may never get your iron levels up. And that's when you have to begin uh, starting to think about intravenous iron. Sure. Kind of two areas is where it's either, you try different formulations and they're intolerant, GI upset, constipation uh, that doesn't help with increased vegetables sure. and fiber in the right. diet or, or, or stool softeners. Uh, or it's your patients who they're taking the right amounts and you've tinkered the amounts either up or down in some cases, and they're not improving because they're probably just not absorbing it beyond ferritin of 40. They're not going to absorb more and never going to get above sure. 40. Yeah. And so those are the patients you need the iron infusion. And that's where... I think it's a very valuable resource. The insurance companies, a lot of the third-party payers are not aware of this yet as a very effective form of treatment. And so it's it's difficult to get the iron infusions covered when a patient is not anemic. Do you have to send a like hematology to get it done or, you know, like It depends on your center. So okay. at a place like the VA, you're more flexible. You could just order it and sure. find one of the infusion clinics and yep. do it. Uh at a at uh, other centers, it's whether it's an opened or closed infusion. Uh, where I practice at Michigan Medicine, it's I can order any. I think physician can order a therapy plan that has uh, iron, and that I just do it myself. Okay. Uh, so, in in the type of iron you get matters how it can be given. The safety profile, though, has been looked into quite a bit. There's a lot of literature on the safety of iron. There were older formulations, particularly of the uh, not low molecular weight, right. the uh, iron dextran. And there were some uh, infusion reactions decades ago it, that has kind of given it a stigma, but it's been well validated. The newer forms of iron, uh, whether it's a ferromoxetol yeah. or ferric carboxymaltose or low molecular weight iron dextran, right. uh, these are highly effective at high doses, meaning you could give 500 milligrams a gram in one shot it could boost the iron levels through the roof without having you bypass the, the GI tract. The iron sucrose in, in the, the, some of the studies, they just don't show as great efficacy with some of the uh, iron sucrose and some of the other older uh, formulations of iron that are quote unquote safer. They're just not as effective. You have to, for example, iron sucrose, you might have to do 200 milligrams over five infusions to get the same amount you could do with yeah. iron dextran and one hour of, of, uh, 60 sure. minutes of 
one gram. So we'll put the, I, I actually, there was a, uh, an update on this, I think last year. And so we'll put the, uh, that update on the dosing for this in the show notes for people so they can look, cause I've actually used that dosing right out of that paper. Right. Yeah. It's just sort of what's on formula, but the newer forms of iron are, you give higher doses very safely. Yeah. It could take months and months of oral iron to get to those levels. Sure. And that's yeah, why yeah. the iron infusion is, is effective. Sure. Um, moving on. Um, I think we talked quite a bit about iron. I think we learned a lot. Um, yeah. What there's a couple other things that I think we definitely want to get uh, in. Um, when when would you add in narcotics? You know, for the management. So it sounds like you would start. You know, you would start a patient with um, an alpha two delta like so gabapentin. Uh, if that doesn't work, like what's your kind of you know mechanism or what's your kind of algorithm for when you would um, add on uh, a narcotic or? Well, so the. So that, that's assuming that the iron has been well right, supplemented. Yeah, assuming, yeah, yeah. Because iron is always, because you're getting towards the pathophysiology. So I want to make that clear that it's always iron first. Right. And then when you're having residual symptoms that warrant treatment, because one of the decisions is also not to treat. Because you're not mm-hmm. treating periodic limb movements. Right. You're treating the clinical symptoms while awake that's causing distress or keeping you yeah. from falling asleep in terms of the patient. Uh, the alpha-2 delta ligands would be first line. Uh, if someone had a contraindication, if they didn't tolerate them, or if they were ineffective, the the next treatment I would go to is an opiate medication because you really, other than conservative measures, if you're getting well beyond conservative measures, you're getting beyond iron. There's really only three main classes of drugs that you could use, which are the alpha two delta ligands, the opiates, and the dopamine agonists. Some people have used drugs like benzodiazepines, but it's it, they just have such such bad side effects, and it's unclear whether you're treating the condition or you're just knocking people out so that they don't notice their symptoms. Sure. Uh, I would hesitate to use benzodiazepines, though some people do use them for restless legs. So really, that would be my second and last line of defense and would how, be the opiates. And how do you like to do that? How do you like to initiate an opiate for a patient with RLS? So, and I, I would say that this is, you're getting into pretty, it's pretty rare, I should say, that a non-augmented patient who has normal iron levels fails a alpha-2 delta ligand. So this is a pretty rare group. The opiates I'm using are usually more on people who are augmented in order to help bridge them off the dopamine agonist. But what I would use is one of the two medications that seem to have an anti-NMDA effect in the brain, that being buprenorphine or methadone. And methadone is the one that there there has been uh, published literature out on. But buprenorphine, I think, anecdotally has similar effects. It might be newer fewer side effects than methadone, but harder to get to again by third payer uh, third payer uh, providers. So the uh, third party payers, I should say. So the, I would start on extremely low doses. And and what it turns out is that restless leg syndrome responds extremely well to opiates. There are overlaps in pathophysiology between opiate pathways and dopaminergic pathways and the these restless legs pathways that we we have yet to fully understand. But mu opioid knockout mice, you know, develop uh, symptoms of restless legs, things like that. So very, some interesting findings. So there are some pathophysiologic basis for opiates and for whatever reason, the neurochemistry of it, the, the, of all the opiates, the, all the opiates work, but it seems like methadone and buprenorphine may have a slight edge pound for pound. So in terms of morphine equivalent, you're going to get more bang for your buck for the restless legs, specifically for methadone and buprenorphine. Uh, moreover, these are longer acting opiates. So you don't get peaks and troughs. 
there's less abuse potential. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, yeah, it's a little scary putting them on a long acting opiate, but you're using such low doses. In fact, the, the dose I would start with, if you're using methadone would be like 0.25 milligrams and not 0.2, I'm sorry, 2.5 milligrams, which is half of the lowest tablet. So some of them you can't even, they're not scored and it's hard to even break it in mm -hmm. to such a low amount, but something like methadone 2.5 milligrams in the evening would be a great starting dose. And I do have a handful of patients on 2.5 or, or five, uh, no side effects, stable dosing. And some of the studies, the retrospective studies on methadone show that it's relatively stable dosing for years uh, on opiates. There's no uh, long-term augmentation or worsening of the condition in, in most cases. And if there were, you'd have to look at something like, well, did the iron go downhill or is there some other thing going on here? Uh, so I, I'm very comfortable with that, but that's, you're getting into a pretty rare group because most of the people that I'm using opiates in are the people who come in on a high dose of dopamine agonist and I'm trying to get them off and they can't go through the withdrawal of getting off the dopamine agonist. And I try to compensate by using a strong drug. And from my experience, the alpha two delta ligands rarely can compensate for the symptoms of withdrawal of dopamine agonists in an aug augmented patient. In, in that case, do you envision the opiate treatment as something temporary? Once they're weaned off of the dopamine agonist, you would then reassess? Or? Right. So the, that kind of gets us into the the augmentation. Yeah. Can you talk? Can you talk uh, about augmentation? Yeah. So basically, to augmentation, and it sort of is on this. If we're going to go back to spectrums, it's on the spectrum of tolerance. Tolerance is like a step before augmentation, but I consider it basically the same thing. It's uh, the an increase in dose of the medication, increase in symptoms earlier in the day, spread to other body parts, or an intensification increase in the symptoms. There are very many different definitions of augmentation that have come out uh, by different groups. But that's basically the general gist of it. You're getting more and more dopamine agonists, and it's not like, well, their, their blood pressure is worse, so we'll double the blood pressure dose. You're going to be chasing your tail because the greater the dose of dopamine agonists, the more augmentation. Mm -hmm. And the faster the augmentation. So you're going to be uh, causing a lot of difficulty. So a lot of patients will come in and they have severe restless legs due to augmentation. And then and you'll, you'll get that from the history is that, you know, I started on this low dose of ropinerol and it, over three years, I've increased my dose to four times the amount. And there are some guidelines as to what is considered maximum. And most of these patients are well over the maximum uh, dosing. So to get them off, you actually have to get them off the drug. Yeah. And the good and the bad news is, if they go through withdrawal and they do a washout, some say about two weeks washout, the dopaminergic pathways of the brain will restore themselves pretty close to normal, not completely back to normal. And so once that washout period is done, then you can reassess where the patient's new baseline is. Mm. Some of those patients don't need a medication after that. They, <laughs> they might've had an iron problem 10 years ago, and now they don't have an iron problem and they wouldn't have the condition if it weren't for the augmentation. Yeah. So so that's where a case where I, I might not need to use anything or if they still have residual uh, symptoms and I don't want to, there's some, I, I might start an alpha two delta ligran if it's not tolerated contraindication, then I may start a low dose methadone as the new drug. The other situation is where they can't get off of the dopamine agonist because the, the horrible withdrawal that they would have to endure and withdrawal. I don't mean a seizure, cardiac arrest. It, it's basically a severe case of restless legs where you, you may not be able to sleep uh, at all for a couple of nights as you withdraw from this drug. So the philosophy sometimes may be cold turkey, two week taper, four week taper, 
real quick, how do you, I mean, it's a patient, patient specific, I guess. Yeah. So uh, the, the groups, uh, the group out of Johns Hopkins, they tend to favor, uh, going off without any other agent to get a clean reset of the dopamine pathways. They think that these other medications, though they work through a different mechanism, may delay withdrawal and therefore reset of the brain. Uh, other people, uh, including myself, I tend to lean towards giving somebody another drug because most of the patients just aren't, are not yeah. able to tolerate full yeah. withdrawal. So for something uh, like, like uh, dopamine agonist uh, withdrawal, I, for Pramipexol, I, I would cut down by like 0.25 milligrams every four days or so. And then the last bit is down to 0.25 and then jump. Sure. And you could do it many different ways with same with ropinirole. Uh, there are some beliefs that you could cross titrate onto a longer acting drug like Pramapexol extended release or transdermal rotigotine 24 hour. So transition to a longer acting, uh, it may produce some relief and halt some of the symptoms of augmentation for a while and then wean that down. And so some people have done that. But then again, there's some third party payer barriers to using the long acting dopamine agonists. Uh, but there's no right or wrong that's been clearly validated in this case. There are uh, so many options, uh, which is nice in treating restless leg syndrome. And uh, we've talked about a lot of the, the mainstay of pharmacologic treatment. What are your thoughts on augmenting treatment with, maybe that's not a good word choice. <laughs> no <laughs> <Supplement>. pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> Supplementing treatment with things like relaxus, restific, other non-pharmacologic treatments that you use? Uh, right. So anytime you can use in sleep medicine is always like machines and CBTI, right? So we're, we're using a lot of non-drug therapies. Anytime you can get away from medications, you can avoid some of the potential side effects. The, uh, uh, the brand name Restific and Relaxis are, uh, are respe respectively, it's, it's lower extremity kind of tactile pressure. And then the other one is vibratory pressure, sort of like scratching an itch. You're, you're sending a signal up from the lower extremities. Hopefully it's shutting down this sensory pathway. That's sort of the theory behind it. This sensory stimulation sort of shuts down the pathway, just like moving the legs. Why does that relieve the symptoms when you're moving your legs? So anything that the barriers are with these are costs. They have been studied. There's a, there's a huge placebo effect. It's hard to say whether objectively that they are effective compared to placebo, but you know, who cares? It's a, it's a placebo driven, it's a experiential condition anyway. So whether or not it's truly working or not working, why not use these relatively safe? Uh, I mean, they're completely safe uh, sure. for the most part devices and gadgets. And that in includes conservative uh, management of, of restless legs on top of any medication. Uh, some people it's alcohol, some people it's caffeine, some people it's the type of alcohol, like it's wine, but not beer, you know, but, but uh, improvements uh, throughout that are conservative, treat the sleep apnea, treat the insomnia, restore the circadian rhythm. These are all important adjunct treatments to any medication treatment for restless kind, legs. Kind of getting into, you're talking about caffeine and alcohol. Are there any medic, other medications that can worsen? restless leg. And if you have a patient that's on them, how do you, and they have like severe restless leg, you recommend that they, you know, try to go off the, you know, the alternative medications. Right. So it depends on the condition, but the, the big ones are the kind of the anti-drugs, right. the anti-psychotics, anti-emetics and anti-depressants. Right. <laughs> Those are the big ones. And actually the anti-psychotics are almost not as much as it, a lot of these are case reports, case series. So a lot of this is not, but it, it, 
it's fairly well vetted that uh, in antihistamines, I forgot one of the antis, but older generation antihistamines like diphenhydramine, uh, almost all antidepressants, SSRIs, SNRIs, really the only one that seems to be not exacerbating of restless legs is bupropion right. because it has some dopamine, pro-dopaminergic effects, oddly enough, and then uh, antipsychotics. So a lot of these, if they're taking it, like let's say they're taking a quetiapine for insomnia because they have restless legs, maybe you could get rid of that and that would solve the restless legs problem. So working with some of the other uh, groups, whether it's primary care, psychiatry, to tinker with say the antidepressant, those are really good approaches, but uh, you also want to keep the patient's general health in mind in that these may not be the huge effect uh, of the, the whole. So it may be sometimes better to start another treatment if you don't want to tinker with their antidepressant and, and risk, you know, have them going out into a spiral. But if they've been on fluoxetine for 20 years and may not actually be depressed anymore, Maybe having them work with their primary care doctor and see if they still need to be on fluoxetine or can they use bupropion instead? Those are, are good things. In a private sector sleep clinic, like our university affiliate that you're at, how often do you see like these iatrogenic causes of medications causing your, your patient restless leg symptoms? Is it rare? Uh, getting at? So it's rare because these conditions would tend to affect people with milder symptoms. So you're not going to get full-blown can't sleep all night restless legs because they okay. started fluoxetine. Yeah. It's the milder cases that would stand to benefit from these medication adjustments. Those you may not see in a yeah. kind of a tertiary uh, sleep clinic or restless legs clinic. Those are usually managed by primary care, actually. So that's actually more important for primary care physicians because they're the first line with restless legs. Yeah, because I can't say I've had a case where I'm like, oh yeah, we quit drinking coffee and his restless legs. I mean, that, that didn't <laughs> yeah. happen. You know, so. Usually you can ask the patient about these specific things and then they can often tell you, oh yeah, I, on Friday night, if I go to, out to dinner with my wife and have two drinks of wine, that night's going to be a restless legs night. Yeah. And so a lot of patients, if you, you kind of pull out some of this history, you can find some of these triggers. Right. And, right. and obviously things like, you know, exercise is a big one because it, it anecdotal kind of anecdotally, large group anecdotally, it's, you know, vigorous exercise. Like you run the marathon, you might have more restless legs that night. But if you sit in your chair all night, you might have restless legs, but something in between, you were pretty active, but not running a marathon, your restless legs is much better that night. So some sort of moderate activity is, is better. And even intense activity might be not so good for some people with restless legs. What's, and we didn't get into this, but what's the age groups like that we start seeing this disorder set into people? So it, it affects all ages. So it's even okay, in, there's pediatric restless legs. It's very, it's because it's a clinical diagnosis. It's much harder for pediatricians because it's, it's like, what, what is this? Is, is this ADHD? Is it fidgetiness? But kids have their ways of describing things. I'm not a, a pediatric physician, so I don't typically see uh, children, but uh, it can happen sure. probably, you know, to the youngest ages of experiencing these single digit uh, agers, uh, older, uh, same thing. It, it, I don't know epidemiologically. I, my sense is that postmenopausal women is it's probably slightly lower than premenopausal. I don't even know for sure that that's the case. That would seem logical to me. Obviously pregnancy is, is worse. And then, um, any type of condition where you have like a cancer or, uh, probably gastrointestinal issue where you're not going to absorb iron, that'll happen more later in life. So there could be some risks older in life with more comorbid conditions. Uh, end stage renal disease is a big one that's associated with restless legs. And, and yeah. that has a lot to do with the iron. 
so you screen in your clinic for restless legs, I take it? You screen for it? And yeah, in terms of the general sleep clinic, I, I'm going to screen for, screen for it because one, I want to make sure it's managed well if I'm not managing mm -hmm. it and the patient didn't come in here for that or because it's oftentimes not asked about because we go into kind of the you know routine mode where we just ask about sleep apnea and we forget about some of the other sure. conditions that any may be playing a role. That you're, is there any specific screen that you use? Do you use the, the IRLS, IRLS or the international? Uh, so people with more moderate, I guess, somebody I'm going to treat, I would say, particularly with either iron or pharmacological agents, I will use the International Restless Leg Syndrome Study Group Scale mm -hmm. uh, to assess because it's sort of a way to quantitate how they're doing and to measure it quantitatively over time. That is not a, a, a diagnostic measure. That's more of a, a, a management measure. It, so to use like treatment efficacy. So this, this International Restless Leg Syndrome Group Diagnostic Criteria, the five we mentioned at mm -hmm. the beginning of the podcast, that's sort of what I, I would use. There's actually no physical test. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, periodic limb movements might be in, in the sleep study are supportive of restless legs, but are not diagnostic. All right. Well, I put think, a link in the yeah. uh, show notes to that scale. So our users can use it if they'd like, but um, I think we got to wrap it up. Any other, <laughs> any other questions? This has been a, a great conversation. Yeah. So Thank I you do really me. appreciate. Oh, look, I, you got, I do want to throw out one more question, which we, we can uh, take a look at later too, if we want to edit it out and, you know, and just see how it goes. Maybe, maybe. But uh, if, if we say Mr. X, the patient in our case, um, we uh, help him with augmentation, we wean him off his Requip, we maybe we bridge him with an opiate, something like methadone, low dose. We get him on pregabalin and, and methadone. Symptoms are stable. What do you tell Mr. X in terms of the evolution of his symptoms from that point on through the lifespan. Um, I would assume, you know, he would have to be on medication long-term. Will the RLS symptoms get worse in all likelihood? Would they expect them to be stable? No, I'm not aware of, of studies showing that it, it's a condition that will degenerate over time. I think it's more, it fluctuates. And the fluctuation again is going to be Anytime there's a change clinically, I'm going to think it's either one of these exacerbating factors, like they, you know, started taking an antiemetic for some reason, or it's something like the iron dropped and maybe there's a condition or maybe it's just the iron, uh, diet, whatever it is, the iron level. That's the first thing I'm going to look at is did the iron level change? And so people I think can be pretty stable on whatever they're on for, for a long time. And if there is a change there usually can be, a, from my experience, a reason found that causes change, whether it's a, a medication effect, a new condition that's developed, and um, that, or or their the iron just started to drop because of some condition that may be going on. And, and I had another question too that you may have to edit out, but you know <laughs> he's CPAP non-compliant. You know, and I've always had this feeling that when we treat the sleep apnea well, the restless legs seems to improve. Is that a false observation on my part, or? That seemed to be the case in your, in your treatment. Yeah. So th that's generally true that in there is at least one great study showing restless legs improve with just treatment of sleep apnea with CPAP. And that has to do with combination of sleep quality and sleep fragmentation. If you re reduce awakenings and arousals, you're not awake to experience your restless legs. You could be having periodic limb movements. Yes. But if you're treating the sleep apnea, you're not having arousals. You're going to have less pain too, because you're not waking up feeling your back pain, but the same, same is true with a, a, a subjective symptomatic condition 
a sensory condition, I should say, like restless legs, where you're not going to feel it if you're asleep the whole night. And it's only going to bother you before you go to bed. And the, the sleep quality, and particularly some of the circadian disruption, it, that may throw off the iron homeostasis to some extent, and it may prolong the period where there's low iron in the brain and drag out the restless leg symptoms. So even fixing somebody's irregular sleep-wake schedule it can improve restless legs. Certainly treating insomnia, uh, com- sleep comorbidities is good for restless legs, independent of treatment of restless legs. All right. Andy, you just want to give us a couple quick take-home points for our listeners so they can go home and be experts on, on restless leg like you? Yeah. So the, the big points that I emphasize, like the, the big key points is that I emphasize the pathophysiology. We know it's an iron, uh, low iron brain, iron deficiency disease. Look at the iron levels in the blood supplement first. Just, it should be done as a, that should be the reflex. I would strongly advise avoiding dopamine agonists as a pharmacological agent because they're pretty much time and dose. They're guaranteed to worsen the condition. And you're going to end up with more of a difficulty down. You're going to kick the can down the road. They're, they're great medications at first and they can knock out the condition. And that's why they're FDA approved, but you don't want to deal with a problem years down the line. And then the third, kind of the third thing is other than in the U S at least using alpha two Delta ligands first, but just don't be super afraid of the opiates. We do have a war on opiates. Opiates are overused. There's no doubt there's, there's opiate related deaths, huge part of mortality and morbidity in this country, but don't be afraid to use it for where it needs to be used. There, there's a reason there are opiates because it does have some beneficial effects, whether it's chronic pain here, we have an unrelated condition, which may not necessarily be pain related where it's having an effect in the brain and producing s- significant relief of symptoms with actually low doses and low side effects and low risk for abuse. So, so don't be afraid of using it. That might be people who are more comfortable with managing restless legs, people, uh, in uh, sleep clinics who have more experience rather than say the primary care physician. Uh, but that should not be a, a, the biggest fear because my fear is what kind of restless legs they'll have. If they're on dopamine agonists for 15 years, I'm less f- afraid of 2.5 milligrams of methadone. All right. Thank you very much. And um, thank you for joining us for, yeah, thanks a, for having me. I'm honored. You. Yeah, it was, that was great. Um, and hopefully list- we get to that cool techno music now. I guess I'm not going to hear oh, it. <laughs> I'm, gonna hear, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you like our intro music. Yeah. Um, to the listeners, thanks for joining us. If you have any questions, please email us at questions dot or questions at the white noise podcast.com. Um, and you can check out our website for show notes and, uh, we'll try to link to the papers that Andy talked about. And the website is www.thewhitenoisepodcast.com. Thank you very much. And we'll see you next month. Thank you.